Welcome to the infected. There is nothing to worry about. You're gonna be just fine. We are the infected, and tonight we will take you along for a wild ride through romance and darkness. We have horror stories, death rock, and killer tracks lined up for you. Plus, you can even hear your funeral right here on our show. But first, come with us to a world of blue sunshine to investigate the perfect murder.
Perfect Murder by The Glove. The Glove is a project by the Cure singer Robert Smith, who you heard on the track, and Susie and the Banshees guitarist Stephen Severin. And this basically comes from a time of crisis for the both of them. Mm. It's, uh, it's from 1982. By then, Robert Smith was on the verge of a breakdown because he'd been taking improbable amounts of drugs, was exhausted from the production and the tour of the Cure's album Pornography, and they had fighting in the band that led to the departure of bassist Simon Gallup, which was pretty heavy for him. Uh-huh. On the side of the Banshees, the current Banshees guitarist had a nervous breakdown in October 1982, shortly before starting an important European tour. So the band fired him, and just like in 1979, Robert Smith was asked to fill in. In November, he officially became a member of the Banshees. So, with Smith now officially in the band, Severin and Smith booked a studio in late 1982. The first song that they recorded was Punish Me With Kisses. But in January 1983, two months after Smith rejoined Susie and the Banshees, Susie and drummer Budgie left England to record an album on their own, as The Creatures. So there they were, together in the studio, Robert Smith having left The Cure, the Benchy's lead singer and drummer being off on a tangent somewhere for their own uh, new act. Uh, they were there in the studio and they had time. So they started working on this project, which they would call The Glove. However, since Smith was still contractually banned from singing with another band uh, outside of The Cure, they recruited Jeanette Landre, who was a former dancer in the club The Zoo and also the ex-girlfriend of Budgie, <laughs> as the lead singer. So Smith did sing on two of the songs, Mr. Alphabet Says and Perfect Murder, which is the song we just played for you. But the sessions were unreal. As Robert Smith describes it himself, we spent 12 weeks in the studio, but actually recorded for only about five days. The rest of the time was spent having an endless party and doing all sorts of drugs, and we invited a succession of people. It was sort of like a station. Once these people got really out of it, they would be moved on, and the next batch was brought in. In between all of this, we would now and then record a piece of piano or some drums. And we didn't sleep much, so we stayed up most of the nights watching horror movies. Awesome. <laughs> so this uh, was kind of a interbellum in, in which Robert Smith was part of uh, Susie as well as having his own band? or I don't know uh, what his contractual status with The Cure was, that he was still you know, contractually bound to them. But after pornography, he basically was just out of it. So um, he, he wanted to join Susie in the Banshees and then Susie and, and Budgie, uh, who, who got married, just left. And then he was there with Steve Severin and they were just there together in the studio and they had studio time, right? Yeah. And this is how this happened. So the glove uh, actually is named after the glove in the uh, Beatles movie, Yellow Submarine. Cool. Where they uh, have this huge sort of flying glove yeah. as part of the movie and they both like that because it's really psychedelic. Obviously they were totally tripping out. So they called themselves the Glove. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's that's where that came from, and they were just sitting in the studio, inviting millions of people, doing lots of drugs, and watching bad horror movies every now and then, pushing record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the horror movie that inspired their band name was Blue Sunshine, and I guess it also inspired this uh, track, Perfect Murder, as well. But Blue Sunshine, yeah, that's one of the movies that they were watching, and apparently this made a huge impression on them. I'm not sure whether they were very impressed with it <laughs> or very freaked out or that they thought it was very you know, comical. Blue Sunshine is a movie which in itself is interesting enough to dedicate an episode of The Big Picture to. Don't you think so? Yeah. The Big Picture. What are you doing here? I thought you had a disease. That's why you're here? You thought I had a disease? What disease? 
Two guys lost all their hair and they completely flipped out and began murdering people. <laughs> so what does that have to do with me? Well, you went to Stanford at the same time they did, and you're losing your hair. Davy, did you ever hear the words blue sunshine back in school? Blue sunshine. The big picture. We had to uh, go into the dark depths of the internet and, and try and fish it up, but we found it. Blue Sunshine. And what is your verdict as uh, our big picture master? Well, it was a drug-infused murderous disco party in uh, three or four words. This piece of obscure 70s cinema is about a bunch of students that dropped a powerful dose of LSD known as Blue Sunshine. And now, 10 years later, in this movie, these students are having the most terrible acid flashbacks you can imagine. They're losing their hair, they can't stand loud noises, and they're turning into homicidal maniacs all at the same time. And for instance, there's a scene which I really liked at the end, and I'm not sure if you saw it as well, where one of these student-turned-maniacs uh, couldn't stand the loud disco music that was playing at the time. And he started killing everyone inside, or at least try to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. At a first glance, it looks like a typical B movie from the 70s, even though the plot is anything but typical. And what I really loved is the cinematography and camera work. So the shots are interesting and well thought through, I think. They definitely build up tension, much better than anyone would expect from a B movie, in all honesty. But the acting is pretty terrible. I'm sure you've seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. It's terrible. And also the story. I mean, why are they going bald? Any idea? No idea. <laughs> I like it, though. It's a new kind of weirdness, but I definitely lost there. And they don't go bald all of a sudden because they're already bald. So the the guys that are going to be turning into crazy murderers, yeah. you can already tell who is going to uh, do this because they're already walking around with wigs on. Which apparently nobody notices for some reason, even though it's, it's, yeah. it's blatantly obvious. It's a really <laughs> weird movie. Also, they, they keep like six strands of hair. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they get these fucked up patches of hair in the last stage before they go completely psycho. It's a, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it's an anti-drug movie, right? Yeah. The whole premise of the movie in the end is that drugs are bad. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're turning into a murderer or whatever because you don't know. This is something that has been repeated a couple of times during your movie. You do not know what you're putting inside yourself. So you're taking risks, yada, yada. If you do drugs, you get punished. You lose your mind. Yeah, that's true. I must say, even after this, uh, this struggle uh, of watching this movie, I do think it's begging for a remake. You got uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was a classic uh, in its own right when it got first released. But if you got some more budget and better acting, maybe still interesting uh, to, to see this being remade. Yeah, maybe, maybe with actors this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe proper actors. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Let's uh, take it to another piece of great music. The track is called A Sullen Sky by the band Low Life. Come 
So we just listened to uh, Low Life with the song A Sullen Sky. Did you know this one, Jeroen? No, never heard of Low Life. Obviously then also never listened to this track. <laughs> okay, that totally makes sense. Did you know the song Low Life by Public Image Limited? Um, no, not really. That's not a shame because that's where their band name comes from. Ah. But let me uh, tell you a little bit about Low Life because I just discovered this, I think, one year ago. Back in the early 80s, two well-known bands came out of Grangemouth, Scotland. And one of these bands was the Cocteau Twins, formed by Robin Guthrie and his longtime pal Will Heggie. 
along with Liz Fraser. I'm sure you know them. Not sure you like them, but you definitely know them. <laughs> great band, great band. Yeah, no, lovely. And the other one was Dead Neighbors, a psycho Billy band that was described as Scotland's answer to the cramps. Oh, really? Hmm. Dead Neighbors? Interesting. I'm going to check them out. Yeah. Also from uh, Grangemouth, uh, Scotland. Cool. And Robin Guthrie had a brother called Brian, and he was the manager of the Dead Neighbors, Brian. And after a few years with the Dead Neighbors, the bass player left the band together with manager Brian to form a new record label that was called Night Shift Records. And the band that was called Low Life, which would release their records exclusively on Night Shift Records from that moment on. And Low Life made their own signature sound with deep atmospheric and mysterious songs, as you just heard over the years, and also the albums that followed. And they tell beautiful and dark stories with their music, I think. Very well balanced as well, between words and music. And the strange thing is, at the same time the band lived the rock and roll dream to excess. Uh, have you seen that documentary about Motley Crue on Netflix? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> but yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. 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 What, those, uh, what those guys did. But well, Low Life did the same, more or less. And um, mm. I would not have thought this, because the band created music of the greatest beauty. Yet as people, they were drug-taking, whiskey-drinking hellraisers. And uh, there are examples where they decided to wire up the door handle at the rehearsal room shut, <laughs> squash whole packs of bubblegum to the hair of band members, or launch fireworks at each other in a car. Well, practical jokers. <laughs> yeah, practical jokers. They were a mix of jackass and uh, Home Alone movies <laughs> come to mind. These are the guys that we've just listened to? It's a strange thing. They sound so different. They sound, I don't know, yeah. subdued, understated. Yeah. Dreamy. Uh, mo modest. Dreamy, yeah. Yeah. Um, they don't sound like they're going to, you know, set your hair on fire in the next minute. That's, that's a weird thing. I, I can't understand. But anyway, in, in 1987, they made the album This Track Is On, and the album is called Diminuendo, and it was assumed by many that Low Life would end up on the famous 4AD record label with this album. But 4AD wasn't interested. Hmm. Also, other labels were not willing to make a move. Maybe they were also scared of the band's wild reputation and behavior. They were known to be an unmanageable band after all. And they went on, on their own label Night Shift, but that was in financial trouble at the same time. Yeah. And in the end, in 1997, after five albums and playing fewer and fewer shows to progressively smaller audiences, hmm. Low Life effectively called it quits. Although there was never any official announcement of a breakup. I've never heard of these guys, to be honest, before last year, maybe even. And uh, this story is was quite strange. You, you find out about these things when doing some research for our podcast. Well, I like the track, and um, I'm uh, going to check them out. Uh, Diminuendo, did you listen to the whole album? Is it uh, worthwhile? I must be honest, I didn't listen to the whole album. But if this is a taste for what's to come, it should be a good one. And it's also on Spotify. This, this track has already landed in two of my playlists, but uh, I'm gonna check out the album later and see you. Uh, I'm gonna do the same. Gonna do the same. Classic. And this is a real classic from 1980. Uh, we're gonna be talking about uh, Once in a Lifetime by a band called Talking Heads. And we had a bit of discussion about whether Talking Heads was a band which we could call post-punk or, or new wave or whatever. What is your association with, uh, with them? These guys made one of the most beautiful songs that ever hit planet Earth, and that's called This Must Be The Place. It still gives me goosebumps, and I listen to it a lot. I think, in all honesty, that's really the, one of the most beautiful songs that's ever been out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
that's that's my only association. I used to own a few records. Mm. It's kind of arty. Yep. A lot of respect. So it's very arty, actually. And they, uh, there are people that met in art school in New York. So that's where they come from. And this uh, song that we're going to be playing is uh, Once in a Lifetime, a very well-known song these days. It's a song that lasted for a long time uh, in, in the collective memory, but it wasn't a huge hit at the time. And the funny thing is, uh, there's a very typical way of singing that David Byrne has in this song. David Byrne himself has gone on record about his lyrical inspiration. And he tells us that most of the words in Once of a Lifetime actually come from evangelists he recorded of the TV and radio. I was picking up phrases I thought were interesting directions. So inspired by the sermons that bring the religious middle class in an obedient trance, Byrne uses the evangelist's timing in the way he sings, and he impersonates them with the glasses and the suits he wears in the video as well. Because this song is about the monotony of middle class people. As Byrne says, they're living unconsciously, in a religion-induced trance. Waking up one day, you realize you're unhappy about the youth you have lost, and dissatisfied with the things you have in life. And by then these emotions are ultimately useless, like trying to remove the water at the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. Like water, life moves on and we're just carried along. And Byrne says, maybe I'm fascinated with the middle class because it seems so different from my life, so distant from what I do. I just can't imagine living like that. Here we are, talking heads, once in a lifetime.
So this uh, album was produced by Brian Eno. Brian Eno surprised the band by counting the track differently when he started working on it. So Eno counted the one as the gap before the actual phrase begins and he arranged the track accordingly. And his way of counting creates a kind of syncopation with the song's phrasing, making it feel sort of strange, which only adds to the lyrical theme of estrangement. The video is worthwhile uh, taking a look at. It was one of the first that got a lot of MTV exposure. And Byrne didn't actually invite the band for the video. He just appeared in the video all by himself. And he made a study of people who were in a religious trance and the way that they were moving. And those were his inspiration for the way that he's moving in this video. And the full band was never invited to appear in any video until two years later. And this trance-type dance that uh, Byrne came up with for the video also became part of the live stage act. And eventually, this grew into an entire set of very peculiar dances that the whole band did when they were performing. For instance, they were running in place for four minutes when playing Burning Down the House. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and their live performance looked so striking that it drew the attention of director Jonathan Demme. Jonathan Demme uh, filmed a few of the shows and turned them into a famous concert movie, Stop Making Sense. David Byrne tended to forget uh, to give writing credits to his fellow band members when they uh, didn't uh, watch out. And he also actively tried to outshine them. So for the Stop Making Sense tour, he pulled another trick. David told the band to wear dark, preferably black clothing for the tour. He himself appeared in an enormous oversized white suit, automatically making himself the center of attention of the shows and ultimately of the movie. One funny detail, and I think of relevance for the show, and it's also the reason uh, I, I wanted to play something by, uh, by Talking Heads. So they came out of New York and they started in CBGB's, a famous uh, punk rock club together with punk acts like the Ramones, but the punk label didn't really suit them. They were too arty and not punk enough. Since it hurt their chances of getting played on the radio, their label boss, Seymour Stein, came up with a new term to describe their music. Can you guess what it was? Art pop? No, new wave. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so this term was supposed to make them more appealing to listeners looking for a more modern and refined sound. And there you have it, the origin of new wave. Nice. The Talking Heads. Yeah, the Talking Heads. They definitely have their uh, position in the genre that we love. Interesting stuff, Jeroen. From the Talking Heads, let me take this to your funeral. 
with the song I Wanna Be You that we're just about to listen to. And it's a very short song, so I suggest we <laughs> play it loudly. And uh, before I start talking about the track, scientists have examined what the perfect length of a song should be. Did you know that? No. Uh, and when did they do this? They did it in 96. And the scientists I'm talking about had the assumption that songs should be short and sweet. Mm -hmm. But they wanted to prove this to the test. And the assumption was made that the Ramones and the Beatles and some of the Pixies' most famous tracks clock in at under two minutes. The outcome of this research is that the ideal song length or golden ratio, if you will, is two minutes and 42 seconds. And what is the length of the song we're about to play by your funeral? Exactly, two minutes and 42 seconds. Is it a coincidence? I'm not sure, but it's a dynamite track. Anyway, back to this band, Your Funeral. They were an all-female death rock band from Denver, Colorado, and they only released one single with two tracks in 1982, and that's it. <laughs> and that obscure piece of beauty is also on Spotify, and I must give Spotify props for having more and more obscurities on their platform, because that was totally different a few years back. You had the bigger, bigger bands on there, but if you wanted to go into a niche, you would be disappointed. But now there's a lot on there. Anyway, even though it's an all-female band, the vocals, to me at least, sound like early Robert Smith. Maybe you can try to listen if you can pick up on that too, or maybe it's just me. And I could not find more about this band, so let me elaborate a bit about the genre that is death rock. The term death rock was first used in the 1950s, way back, to describe themed rock and roll songs about a morbid but also romantic view about death. The term later re-emerged to describe the sound of several West Coast punk bands from the early 80s. And you can recognize it by a driving and repetitive rhythm section, simple guitar chords with a lot of effects pedals for added atmosphere, and also these bands, they basically took punk and they added dark yet beautiful, playful themes borrowed from horror movies, surrealism, religious imagery to add on to the atmosphere. So it comes to no surprise that also the lyrics are totally introspective and deal with dark themes of isolation, gloom, disillusionment, loss, life, death. Well, <laughs> heavy stuff. Yeah. Heavy stuff. Yeah. But uh, still very energetic if you listen to it. And uh, the cramps uh, we featured last week, Jeroen, they kind of also did this, I think. But uh, on the east coast of the US, on a smaller scale, also uh, they didn't label themselves as a death rock band. But we can um, put in our show notes some other bands that, uh, that are big in this genre and uh, maybe give you some listening suggestions. But for now, let's listen to your funeral. I want to be you.
So this was definitely a uh, one-day fly. <laughs> Death of the one-day fly, yeah. Your funeral. But they made it count. What an energy. Holy fuck. <laughs> yeah, the enthusiasm is uh, is really leaping at you through the speakers. Yeah. Uh, I never heard of death rock as a genre, and I'm I'm dying to find out who were called death rock in 1950. Maybe there's a whole uh, army of dark acts that we haven't managed to miss, uh, you know, until until now. Yeah. Let us dive into that, and if we come up with something cool, we'll let you know, our dear listeners. But, uh, yeah, this is this is very enthusiastic. You can hear the punk uh, influences. Uh, it's definitely 1982. I would say the instrumentalists are not that great. Uh, <laughs> When the guitar player has to do that uh, that sort of ringing riff, yeah, yeah, it takes her a couple of seconds to get her hands back <laughs> in position for the rest of the track. Yeah, very, <laughs> very punk indeed. <laughs> That's kind of funny. I do understand what you said about her sounding a bit like Robert Smith. She has a way of her intonation or singing uh, slightly off tone, yeah. leaving a tone at the end of a sentence or something, which is uh, yeah. something that I recognize from Robert Smith as well. So yeah, I, I do understand where you're coming from. Let's have more death rock. I'm all for it. Yeah, we'll put some uh, some suggestions in our show notes. And we are hitting all the marks for uh, our diversity uh, quota again uh, today because uh, after this all-female band uh, is going to be Etienne Daho, a French cult hero with an Algerian background. And he has steadily been releasing pop hit singles and albums since 1981. And his last official album, Blitz, was released in 2017. So Etienne has been releasing a lot of music over the last couple of decades. So here is Etienne Daho with Soleil de Minuit.
So, Gov, obviously you're great at French, so you're going to uh, offer us a detailed analysis of the lyrics. No, <laughs> <laughs> so I must disappoint you all. No, yeah, so I had a uh, six, or that's in uh, English, it's called a C or a D even in, in, in French class. So I, I can't understand what people are saying, but I was just caught up in the mood of this song again. Got stuck in the, the, the rhythm. It's, it's, can you tell me a little bit more? Because this guy's been active since 81, sounds quite new and fresh still, but this guy's been around. This song is from a 2015 release, uh, although I think that the original of this song is older, but it, it was really hard to find out uh, what, what the origin of this track is. And I just love the, the lyrics. I did, uh, I have to admit, I did run them through Google Translate in order to understand what he was singing about. And That's very, very honest of you. Thank you for making me feel less shitty about myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so but i do love the lyrics even though they don't make a perfect story they're more of a sort of a train of thought stream of consciousness type of affair but yeah i like the uh, the atmosphere um i really like etienne the host singing he's not trying very hard to mm-hmm. show off he's just flowing with the music and he's not trying to pull any tricks but really adding to the atmosphere and i i like that no he's confident yeah yeah it is and uh, can you tell me about where did you find this or is it something you listen to regularly or no actually i didn't hear of uh, etienne Ho until quite recently and um, he popped up in uh, my listening suggestions and uh, hmm. i do listen to uh, french and, and and belgian music more than the average listener i say and uh, sometimes that brings its uh, rewards yeah interesting piece of music i really liked it thanks for uh sharing it with us, Jeroen. The Infected. I've got uh, something from France too. The band is called Herd. It's a solo project created at the end of 2013 by Sébastien Bassin from the city of Bordeaux in France. He was in a band, but he wanted to make music that he really liked himself. And he liked to stay away from guitars for a while because he'd been playing guitars since he was 13 years old. So he jumped into the uncomfortable process of purely creating music with synthesizers. And I know what I'm talking about <laughs> because I also had synthesizers. I believe you did too, Jeroen. Yeah, yeah, a bit. Yeah, dabbled. So, so MIDI equipment and there was always trouble with connecting and synchronizing and um, anyway. Everybody uses their own approach in making electronic music and uh, Sebastian usually starts with the bass line and the beat. I always started with the beat and then did the rest. If the beat caught me, well, then you're set. Mm-hmm. Anyway, then the main themes and ideas uh, start to pop up. And after that, there's a long effort between arrangement, variations, harmonic experiments, lyrics and mixing. 
And what Sebastian really likes about it is that it's quite intensive. It really gets you connected with the music. Also, you're the only one making the music. So it's very much you and the music, apart from being a band and having to negotiate and uh, yeah. Yeah. do everything uh, together. Anyway, his music is inspired by 40 years of electronic music mixed with some contemporary dark and electronic music as well. And there's also a bit of goth and some pop accents here and there, as you can hear. He's been uh, perfecting his sound for 10 years now. He's been active, I believe, 10 or 12 years. He's done four albums and three EPs. That's quite productive, if you ask me, in a time span of 10 years. And according to Sebastian, nowadays it's somewhat easier to create that 80s dark sound. I would say it's easy. it was easy in the 80s, but um, it's easier now. He says at least it's cheaper. Since and other materials to record and build a home studio are cheaper now. So more of a level playing field and an equal opportunity. But it's uh, definitely harder to get your music noticed these days. Mm-hmm. We noticed that with our podcast. So of course we're making our podcast for, in, for a niche audience. But the internet is also yeah, great to spread music and find shows. But it's also a big ocean for a band to exist in and money and the right contacts are fundamental to stand out. With big platforms like Spotify, Apple or Deezer not sharing most of their revenue with artists, it's a real struggle. That's what Sebastian says at least. Mm-hmm. I suggest you check out more of him because it's more of the same mood. It sounds similar to this song, but very. Yeah, I think it's very powerful and a fresh approach to the 80s sound we love so much. This is Silence by Heard.
cool. Is it me or, um, and, and maybe it's strange, but I have a sort of a faithless vibe that I'm picking up in this song. I don't know if it's the arpeggiated synths or the chords that are lifting it up behind it. Is it, is it something you can relate to? Let me just think back. Uh, I think the arpeggios and um, the, the maybe generic sounding synth sounds, but I can relate. And I'm not sure if these guys buy actual hardware synthesizers or use certain plugins. What I really liked about it is the, the power of this song, that like the, the bass and the beat that come to full fruition in around two minutes. But yeah, hear what you're saying. Well, you said it was it was easier and cheaper to get the 80s sound these days, so that makes me think that he's probably downloaded a lot of software. <laughs> I think so. Could be. Because those those uh, those keyboards and those synths are getting real expensive by now. Yeah. The real the, yeah, the oldies are and um I, Roland is releasing uh, versions of their 303 and 909 and 808 these days for 200 bucks that sound really convincing and awesome that are uh, not analog but based on analog waveforms and also released by the same company Roland. Now I think it's mostly plugins and if you're a smart man you got a MIDI keyboard and you got the whole spectrum of synthesizers at the top of your hands for, for just a few bucks I think. But uh, I, I get the Faithless connection, yeah. I like the song. It's uh, a good track. Uh, there's a great sort of build-up to it. It has this driving force. So once it gets going, it takes you along. It's like you're stepping onto a musical train that just pushes you through the landscape of the song. I really like that. Good to hear. And uh, Sebastian also mentioned that it's harder to get your music noticed these days. So maybe he took a difficult band name to stand out with that O, with a diagonal dash between it. I don't know. <laughs> well, if you want to stand out, a very complicated band name certainly isn't going to help you. That's for sure. <laughs> no, yeah. And I understand his comments, but in the end, things weren't very different in the 80s or the 90s. Every band had to deal with a record label for them to do the financing of the recordings and the venues and the distribution and the marketing of the albums. And even if you had recorded at home with a record label, you would have distribution, your album would be in the shops. Because... If you wouldn't have one, no one would have heard of you and your record wouldn't have been on sale anywhere. So these days, recording can be done at home with instruments, computers and software. But instead of record labels making really bad deals with young artists, like back in the day, these days you have Spotify, Pandora and the likes, who are of course keeping some of the money for themselves, but there's also less money generated per artist. Yeah. Since the barrier to entry has become so low, it's become easier to record and publish quality audio which we are another great example of. <laughs> but there is just an almost unlimited supply of things to listen to. So the money has to be split over so many more artists and the revenues per individual go down. If you look at Spotify's income from advertising and subscriptions, it may look like a lot, but if you divide it over the gigantic amount of streams people are consuming, it's not that much for an individual act. What's worse is that until recently, most of the money was coming in from live performances and the accompanying merchandise sales, but Hey, surprise, that isn't happening so much anymore either, as we have this infection going on. That's definitely true, I think. I think there's something there. Infect me. So, our dear friends, we have now come to the end of this week's ride. We do hope you liked this week's tunes and tales. I had fun. How about you? I had a lot of fun. Please let us know what you think through our website, that is theinfected.nl or reach out on Instagram through at theinfectednl. Also on our website, you will find playlists with even more music, exclusive interviews with bands we featured, and also our infected merchandise. And Jeroen was so kind to add new products for the winter this weekend. 
And since we are friends, we offer free shipping with the code INFECTME. So do check it out on theinfected.nl. And if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and leave a nice rating on Spotify, iTunes or your platform of choice. Right now, we will leave you and hopefully meet again next week. We are going to climb up to the roof and jump off a gargoyle and fly into the night. Goodbye for now.